Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface may appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Today, I'm here with Reed Wilkinson. Reed graduated from St. James Academy in 2018. For a while, he became a personal trainer while simultaneously going to college. He got pretty ripped when he did this, but right now he is primarily getting ready for law school. And so as a result, a lot of his energy and attention has been focused on that. But recently, he absolutely blew my mind. Reed sent me a list of books that was just enormous. I think there's something like 48 books on this list, and they fall into six categories, philosophical, self-growth, politics, Um, religious and Christian ideas, dystopian future slash understanding human evil, and finally, great works of fiction. Um, This list includes, as authors, people like Marcus Aurelius, Aristotle, Epictetus, um, Jordan B. Peterson, Napoleon Hill, Mark Devine, who is a Navy SEAL, um, gosh, James Madison with the Constitution of the United States, more Aristotle, Plato, Um, Billy Graham, George Orwell, Ray Bradbury, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and just a bevy of good novels, including Crime and Punishment, War and Peace, Sherlock Holmes, The Alchemist, and many, many more. So I'm just going to be honest, in high school, Reed did not really strike me as much of a reader. And now he has this explosive list, and I just can't wait to get into this. So that was kind of a long introduction, but hey, Reed. Hey, it's really good to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad you could come in. Hey, before we get into books, could you get, uh, give us a biography of yourself? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in this area, like the Shawnee, Lenexa area, my whole life. I've been to Catholic school essentially my whole life, except for you know, a few years I went to Johnson County Community College. Um, there I kind of just focused on sports, not so much school, because, you know, I wanted to go to the NBA like every other, you know, teenage boy. Um, Kind of focused on that more so and didn't really care about my schooling until my high school year, my junior year, I actually um, herniated some discs in my back. And so I was, uh, you know, left really unable to, you know, exercise or play sports. And so that kind of made me reevaluate my future and realize that, you know, I'm mortal, I am, you know, fragile as a human being and that my body can't withstand all of this training for the rest of my life. So I'm going to have to, you know, rethink, you know, is, is, is sports, is that really what I want to do with my life or do I want to do something more, you know, educational, more, for lack of a better word, um, you know, like literate, like, do I want to do something like that? Um, and after, you know, really thinking about it and talking with my parents a lot and I decided that I wanted to devote my life to the study of law, um, there's a lot of ideas that went into that. Um, I recently, as applying for law school, I've had to write a personal statement, okay. which is kind of just like, you know, why you want to practice law. And for me, it was just the love of my country and the love of reading is, you know, we can talk about that. Yeah. I got into that a lot um, in the last few years, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been a crazy journey from uh, high school since now because of covid and just you know different jobs i've worked and it's you know crazy i i really appreciate how you kind of did a deep dive into your own psyche to figure out what you really liked and i think you said you love this country 
and then you loved reading. And so those two things combined to make you want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that's good. I think maybe that's maybe what people need to do is kind of dive into their own personality, their own psyche a little bit, and see if they can add the pieces together in such a way that maybe this could turn into an actual career or For an sure. actual job. So, mm -hmm. so I'm very impressed with that. So, hey, let's, let's just dive straight into the books then. Um, why don't we start with the philosophical category? For sure. And you could start with any book you like, but these are the things that Reed listed. Uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, um, could you explain who he was just really quickly? Yeah, and then, then was, I'll list the rest of these. Yeah, for sure. He was a Roman emperor, um, I believe, in the year 300 AD. That sounds about that right. Part. Um, and he was really one of the last uh, true Roman emperors before the fall of the Roman Empire. And he was not the founder, but a he, he kind of popularized the idea of stoicism and the idea of understanding that every human being is mortal. Um, and just realizing, you know, what you can and cannot control in your life. And uh, that's where, how to think like a Roman emperor is actually about his life. Okay. Um, and it gives, like, specific examples of how, like, for example, there was a period of time in his life where he actually co-ruled with one of his brothers. And um, he, his brother was a drunk. He didn't really, you know, focus on the country as much. And so through that, he learned things like, you know, telling the truth or at least not lying to people who need to hear the truth or mm. being... You know, kind of like a tough love situation with kind of people. Yeah. Like that. Um, and then when his brother died um, from, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe it was alcohol poisoning, um, he really had to reevaluate his life. And that's when he finally, I guess not finally, but first realized that he's a mortal human being because that was a very um, young period of his yeah, life. Yeah. I, I mean, well, you know, we all kind of think that we're bulletproof maybe when we're teenagers or college students, like we think we can't be harmed. A lot of people anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I might have been that way. I don't remember. It's been a very long time. But yeah, once you have a close encounter with a loved one dying, mm -hmm. then it's probably going to underscore for you that, hey, this could happen to me. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then at the very end of uh, Roman, the Roman Emperor book, um, he's on his deathbed, and he's, you know, the author goes into, like, vivid detail. His skin is translucent. Mm. Everyone around him is crying, and he's just sitting there, you know, like, happy as, as a clam, and he's just sitting there like, why are you guys all crying? Like, this is this is inevitable in life. This is something that you can't change. It's going to happen to you. And he uh, popularized the term in Latin, memento mori, okay. which is remember that you are mortal. Um, and so... That, I believe, is his biggest contribution to the idea of Stoicism. Because um, Seneca also was a pioneer of Stoicism, but Marcus was the one who really put it into practice and was the first true authority figure or leader in the world um, who actually you know, followed it. Because before, uh, philosophy was more for people who you know, didn't have jobs, they just taught, um, they really weren't seen as great people. Um, and I really do believe, because Marcus, uh, you know, like I said, you know, pioneered that, as a leader in the, you know, world in 300, um, it opened up, you know, the dialogue for people to say, okay, well, this is not just for people who are poor. This is not just for people who are homeless. This is for everybody, and this is something everybody needs to learn about and apply to their own lives. Okay, okay, and, and we can get into that in just a little bit. I should have listed all these books right off the bat, but that was a great explanation. Uh, how do you pronounce this? Neomachian ethics? Uh, Nicomachean ethics. Okay, by, by Aristotle. Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's the next one? The Right Side of History by Benjamin Shapiro. Okay, and then 
This one by... Oh, The Enchiridion by Epictetus. Okay, and uh, Dialogues and Essays by Seneca, mm -hmm. and then Maps of Meaning by Jordan B. Peterson. Mm -hmm. uh, which one of these, or two of these, do you really want to dive into? Uh, we can talk about The Enchiridion by Epictetus. Okay, let's do that. I'm actually not familiar with that work. I know that he's a Stoic, and mm -hmm. gosh, you know, maybe I read a novel by Tom Wolfe a long time ago called A Man in Full, where this innocent guy gets sent to prison and he mm -hmm. orders a book called the stoics and he thinks it's by a bunch of uh he thinks it's by a mystery writer that he likes he thinks it's the latest one in the series mm -hmm. but they actually make a mistake and send him a philosophical book mm -hmm. about the stoics okay. and in this book it actually puts a lot of steel in this guy's spine he understands hey i'm in prison it's not just it's not fair i didn't do anything mm -hmm. but i'm here and um that's my situation. I believe it was. So the Enchiridion roughly translates to the handbook. Okay. I believe it was Latin. Okay. I don't quote me on that. I don't remember. Um, but I, I, that may have been the book they gave him because the main idea in the Enchiridion is, you know, understanding and accepting what you can and cannot control. It's kind of like that Catholic prayer where it's like, Lord, you know, give me the strength to know the difference between what I can and cannot control and act on it. And that's kind of what um, you know Epictetus talks about, which is understand what you can control and what you can't control, and then if it is best for your situation, act on what you can control. Mm. And uh, and Stoicism is basically kind of a philosophy of I don't know if I want to say stiff upper lip, um, but but just sort of accepting your circumstances and working from there. Um, how would you describe Stoicism? You know, I think Stoicism gets a really bad rap because everyone thinks you're this like. You know, Bruce Wayne, Batman, where you're just like emotionless. Right, no personality. Exactly, yeah, no personality. But, you know, it's it's not like that at all. It's, it's you know, it's like, you know, if you read, you know, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, you know, he begins the book with saying, like, you know, say to yourself every morning, today I will meet the busybody, the evildoer, you know, the, the I forget the actual quoting of it, but he's essentially saying, like, you're going to meet some really bad people today. Yeah. And you got to tell yourself that. And when you prepare for that, you're not you know, ruining your day by saying, you know, I'm going to meet someone who's going to deceive me, but you're telling yourself, you know, be mentally prepared for when it happens. Cause it's not an if it's, it's going to happen. It's, it's a when a, exactly. Yeah. It's not an if it's a when we're going to run into maybe the dumb person or the know-it-all or the person who didn't bathe or something, you know, you're going exactly. to run into these people. Exactly. And so when you prepare for that, um, before you actually, it's kind of like preparing for a weightlifting competition. You yes. have to prepare months in advance, not just physically, but also mentally for like what you're about to do or like a sports competition, like the Super Bowl. you have to prepare. And if you don't prepare, you're gonna go into that. It's gonna be an uphill battle. Okay, sure. okay. so and and he just <clears throat> would get up every morning and say, hey, this is what is going to happen today. Mm -hmm. And it's not negative or fatalistic. It's really actually realistic. And I guess if we know a little bit more about Marcus Aurelius, he's an emperor. And some people said he was probably the most powerful man in the world mm -hmm. while he was alive. And the cool thing about his book, Meditations, as far as I know, please correct me if I'm wrong on this, is that he never intended any of this for publication. He oh. didn't. He actually was, uh, I forget the name of the war, but... Um, Half of it's actually lost within, oh. like, nobody knows where it is. So the book is only about 50 pages long. Oh, wow. Um, but they estimate it to be about two to 300 pages Oh, my long. gosh. So we lost we lost a lot of good stuff. Yep. Same with the Enchiridion and Nicomachean Ethics. They really believe that, you know, Nicomachean Ethics was just a student of Aristotle's who wrote down his thing. So they believe that there's actually more to his ideas right. than that. Same with Meditations. Um, 
I forget what war it was in, um, but he was in a war when someone found it, and then they didn't find it until about 50 years after his death. Mm. And so they translated it to, um, I think it was originally in Roman. Okay. And then they translated it to, you know, a bunch of different languages. Okay, okay. Um, for sure, so. Yeah, and so the cool thing about it is you have this guy who is the most powerful man in the world, mm -hmm. and he's writing a private journal for himself just so that he can make sense of his own life, his own experience, and understand that, hey, I might be the emperor, but I still have all these limitations. You know, like you said, when you wake up in the morning, he's still going to meet the complainer. Mm -hmm. He's going to meet the pessimist. He's going to meet the uh, saboteur. You know, he's going to meet all these bad characters. Mm -hmm. um, and he has to deal with this stuff. He might be the most powerful man in the world, but his power only goes so far. Mm -hmm. And he's still mortal. <clears throat> mm -hmm. He still understands that he's going to die someday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he probably can't change his family and turn them into different people, even though he might want to. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is, I guess, what stoicism is, is it's, hey, it's optimistic in the sense that you don't say, woe is me. You actually kind of get the work and you get started on your day. Um, so it's, it's optimistic in the sense that you're taking action, mm -hmm. uh, but it's realistic about people, events, and situations. For sure, yeah. I think in, uh, in Seneca's, in one of his essays he writes, in the Dialogues and Essays book, yeah. um, he, he compares it to you're, a, you're, you're at a banquet, and there's 50 people around you in a giant circle, and there's a bowl of like potatoes that are being passed around. And so since there's 50 people, you may or may not get a bite of those potatoes on your plate. So you have to be okay with if you're going to get some or not. If you do, great, that's awesome. But if you don't, awesome, that's great. You're okay with whatever life gives you. And I think that's a really good metaphor for life. I do too. I think that's really impressive. You know, I've, I've always been able to take that attitude with jobs, but not necessarily with everything else. Like with jobs, I would apply for jobs and I don't know why, but if I didn't get a job, I would just assume that there was something wrong with that job, that God was looking out for me, that it, I, I would not have been a good match for them, that there was either something wrong with them or there was something wrong with me or there was both, but that I dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. and, and it didn't matter how good it looked on the outside. Just for whatever reason in my life, I've always been able to assume it just wasn't going to be a good fit. Mm -hmm. And I, I think maybe that's a stoical attitude. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. You I just, wish I, you said it better than I could have said it. So well, sure. I, I wish I could have done that with many other things in my life, you know. <laughs> but that's that's the one where I, I don't know why I just have been lucky and just blessed that way to just have that attitude. The Lord uh, works in mysterious ways, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, pick up another one of these philosophical books and tell me what you gleaned <clears throat> from it. Um. I would say we can go into some more of uh, that. We can go into Maps of Meaning by Jordan B. Peterson. Jordan yeah. B. Peterson is probably one of my more favorite authors that I like to read. I don't know if you know any of his work. Well, I, I love, absolutely <clears throat> love, 12 Rules for Life. And then Beyond Order came out, and I liked that one even better. I, I really did. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say that they're both excellent, and, and if I picked up 12 Rules for Life and reread it, maybe that one would become my favorite again. Oh, for sure, yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard to know, and his, his videos on YouTube and other places are just electrifying. Oh, yeah. And his podcast is just absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, I just always thought, hey, if I were to be a professor, the ideal 
would be to be George V. Peterson. 100%. I, I'm just thinking, how does this guy know as much as he knows? It's crazy how much he knows. Yeah. And then, I, and then at the same time, though, when you listen to him, he is very humble because he will admit all of his failings. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, he... Whenever he interviews somebody who knows more about a given topic, he, he's very, very in tune to that person. He is working very hard to understand mm -hmm. that other person. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, that's my sales pitch for Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I think he's great. I think he's amazing too because for me, I had one of my uh, friends I met at my old job at a gym I used to work at. He, um, this last summer when I was telling him I'm getting into books, he gave me the book and said, hey, this is for you. I thought you'd like it. And I was like, Jordan B. Peterson, my older brother, Neil, yeah. shout, out, shout out to Neil if you're listening, um, <laughs> was, uh, he, you know, Neil liked Jordan B. Peterson. I was like, I've always heard about this guy. I've, I've never really looked into him. And I read 12 Rules for Life and I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with his writing. And, and for me, it was what you just said, where it was like, he just has these ideas that we all think, but he puts them in such a poetic yes. way and explaining them like a basic idea of like, you know, like, make your bed before you judge other people in the world, or make your room, I think, is what Yeah, yeah, before you criticize anybody else, straighten <laughs> up your own life, yep. that's not word for word, but that's the basic idea that, you know, hey, if, if your own life is chaotic and messy and bad, and if you're an unhappy person, this is probably not the time to get on Twitter and become a Twitter warrior so that you can correct the rest of civilization and explain to everybody else what they should be doing instead. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, just in a nutshell, we all need to kind of clean our room first, but mm -hmm. maybe it's called clean your room before you criticize the world. I think that's what it was. I think, I mean, I, from what I've understood, it's, it's that. And then it's also just an analogy for like, well, you can't fix the bigger things and the bigger problems in your life, you know, even if not just other things, but in your own life, unless right. you fix the small things first, because the big things take like a, like an X number amount of energy, and if you can't even expel, you know, a Y number of energy to do your own clean your room or clean your house or fix your own problems first, how can you expect to help other people? Yes, it's kind of like to to give an analogy, you cannot pour from an empty glass, is what I think. You cannot pour from an empty glass. Yes, I like exactly. that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I that's think that's good. the analogy that he gives in one of his uh, online essays, or okay. excuse me, uh, lectures he gives. Okay, okay. Yeah, it just also kind of reminds me of, I heard this from a psychologist, you can't give away what you don't have, which mm -hmm. makes sense. I mean, if you want to teach other people to be patient, it would help if you had a little bit of patience yourself. For sure, yeah. And there's always that sweet spot in the middle that you gotta you have to find, and that's you know we can go back to philosophical for just a second. Yeah, yeah, please do. In Nicomachean Ethics, um, I'm not sure if any of your listeners have, um, you know, read about Aristotle, but he he talks about the mean between the vices. Yeah. And so you know you have to find that sweet spot of you know for example courage. You know if you if you walk out of a movie theater and you see. Uh, like, a, like an old woman being robbed, you know, courage is not running into the situation, you know, reckless um, and trying to stop the robber. Courage is rather, you know, looking at the situation, assessing the situation, and then doing what's best in the situation. So if you walk out and you see the guy who's like 6'5", like a matte surface kind of guy, uh -huh. and you're like, yeah, I don't really want to mess with that guy. I'm going to call the police, you know, or, you know, that's that's a brave, courageous thing. To right, do. right, or, right. Or um, the flip side of that is if you size him up and say, okay, he only has a knife, you know, he's smaller than I am. I feel like I can safely get involved in both parties. Yeah. I'm going to be okay in the end. Yeah. Then you, you know, 
apply that. You're a pretty big, tough guy. What are you, 6'4"? Six, 6'3", six, yeah. Okay. I, I like to say 6'4", though. <laughs> <laughs> and you've yeah. got muscles in places where I don't even have places, Reed. He's got muscles on his eyeballs. <laughs> That's the joke that we always t- tell my family is uh, like the Spongebob episode with the salty spittoon. Okay. flexes his eyeballs. Um, but yeah, and so like same with... Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, like applying that is that like, you know, you have to, you know, look at yourself and fix yourself and, and understand yourself truly before you can go out and do things like that. Right. And I feel like that's, you know, Jordan Peterson, I feel like is more of a philosopher than he is a psychologist. Yeah. Because his ideas do connect a lot with Epictetus and Aristotle and Seneca. Um, and so, you know, reading the philosophical books first really helped me make those connections in my mind. And for all your viewers listening, I gave uh, Tim the link to these book, uh, this book list. So if anyone wants to go read, please do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, um, so getting back to this idea from Aristotle, that virtue, I think, lies uh, in, the, in the mean mm-hmm. or between two extremes. Is mm-hmm. that kind of the idea? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. another way of looking at this, I, I don't know if it's the same. You'll have to tell me if it's the same. Uh, Carl Jung, the psychologist, I believe, I think it was him, who believed that things have, uh, there's a true thing, and then they always have an opposite, but then they also have a counterfeit. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a really, really good idea to keep track of. You know, for example, um, you know, we could say, hey, love, love is, is a true thing, and that's when I want the best interest of the other person. I'm, I'm working hard to do good things for the other person. Mm-hmm. I, I want their best interest. Well, then the opposite of that would be hate, where I want evil things to happen, mm-hmm. you know, to the other person. But then love also has a counterfeit. And the counterfeit might be, you know, hey, I think somebody's really attractive and I want to use her, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, you know, a counterfeit might look like the real thing, but it isn't the real thing. Okay. And so that's, I think, a very similar idea. Maybe. I haven't read up a whole lot of uh, Carl, Carl Jung. Carl Jung, yeah. But I definitely should. I, I know that I've had people recommend that to me before. Yeah. Um, with, I, I've been studying for my law school admissions test so right. much, I haven't really been able to get any new books. I have a list of books in my room that I check off. Gotcha. So I have like seven lined up for as soon as I'm done. I'm just going to dive right in. Awesome. Well, let's go back to Aristotle then. Could you elaborate on what this um, uh, virtue lies in uh, the middle between two extremes? Could Mm -hmm. you outline what that is? Yeah, so kind of like uh, going back with the the movie theater example. Yeah, with the the robbery or whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. You always have to choose the best um, course of action between the two vices. Okay, so, so no we, getting, we don't want to be a chicken. That's yeah. that's one end of the spectrum. And we don't want to be crazy brave and just rush into the situation without any knowledge mm-hmm. and potentially get more people killed. Exactly. Through, yeah. through my own stupidity. Exactly, yeah. And it's not even really like crazy bravery. It's just crazy recklessness is what I like to say because, you know, like like I said, like you're when you size up the situation and you really think you can get involved with both parties being, you know, unharmed, then you can get involved. But, you know, a lot of people think that bravery is running into battle and, you know, which it is in most situations, but, you know, you, again, you have to assess the situation and see if you getting involved would make the situation better or worse for yourself and the other person. See, this is what I love about philosophy, actually, because I just feel that it's either not taught properly or somehow in the popular culture, people have this really bad view of it because 
I think philosophy is meant to be practical mm -hmm. because it really sort of clearly outlines in this situation, the robbery that you were discussing, that the correct course of action is to act courageously, mm -hmm. but then after that, we're going to have to figure out, well, what is courage in this situation? You know, if, if the other guy has got a gun and he's much bigger and faster and tougher and younger than me, then maybe courage in this situation is for me to call 911. Mm -hmm. Or maybe courage in this situation is for me to outsmart him somehow. Um, and I think that's what philosophy does for people, is I, I think it gives them guidelines mm -hmm. and, and rules for life. Sometimes the rules are rigid, like never do this, but sometimes the rules are uh, more situational. Mm -hmm. and, and I just think that's the virtue of philosophy, is it's meant to be practical. Mm -hmm. but, sure. but I think people have this image of philosophy as being this useless thing. Yeah, because most people don't study philosophy until they get to college. I right. Mean, I remember speaking with my mother about this. She always is like, oh, I hate philosophy, because you know, in, you know, coming from a Catholic family, I've yeah. always, you know, read works from Thomas Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh -huh. um, and other saints, and, you know, a lot of people don't understand this, but that is in and of itself philosophy. That's he, right. Thomas Aquinas, you know, or St. Thomas Aquinas, whatever you subscribe to, is a philosopher, and he just happens to intertwine religion into his works, but more, I, I would say 90% of his work doesn't center around religion if you really get into mm. it. 12 different volumes of his work. Okay. I haven't read them all. I've read only like one or two. I'm impressed. But thank you. Yeah. Most people are not out there reading, you know, what is he? 15th century Catholic saint philosopher? I believe so. Yeah, people are not out there. I'm probably in the wrong century. <laughs> Me too. I don't really know. I just I just read the book. I don't really look into the history behind it. Unless yeah. it's Marcus Aurelius apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. Um, well, how about we move on to self-growth and leadership <clears throat> traits? We've already talked a little bit about the two Jordan B. Peterson books that you listed. Also on the list, you have Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which mm -hmm. I read, uh, 15 Invaluable Laws of, of Growth by John C. Maxwell, which I have not read, Leadership by Rudy Giuliani, which I did read, Way of the Seal by Mark Devine. I may have started this, I'm not sure. Uh, the Gift of Fear, which I have not read and I'd love to hear about. The Lone Survivor, which I know I should read. Um, and then finally, Black Hearts by uh, Kim Friedrich. Mm -hmm. Okay, so go ahead. Dive in. Yeah, so The Gift of Fear, I'll start with that one. Because from that list, besides the Jordan B. Peterson books, I'd say is my second favorite. Okay. Um, so I don't know a thing about it. I'm dying to hear about it. For sure, yeah. It's it's mainly a book meant for women. Because, okay. um, you know, that they're... I guess, you know, no disrespect to any women out there. Um, there are more often than not cases of sexual assault mm. where women are victims. And that's okay. very, very unfortunate. And so the book uh, begins with a story about a woman who meets a man at a grocery store. Okay. And she has this really weird feeling about him. And he keeps okay. talking to her. And she's just trying to be nice. And she, you know, even though she doesn't want to talk to him, she's still engaging and trying to be nice because she doesn't want to come off as rude. And, you know, he ends up following her home because she walks to the to the market to her apartment. Okay. And, you know, she ends up dropping uh, a can outside of her door. And before she knows it, he picks it up and gives it to her. And, you know, again, she's being too nice. And he ends up, you know, taking advantage of her. Okay. And it's very, it's a very, very dark story. So a okay. little bit of a graphic thing okay. on it's, that part. It's, it's a sexual assault. Unfortunately, okay. yes. And, okay. And the book ends up not going into just that specific example, but it's talking about how we as humans have evolved to have this innate sense of, hey, like, 
this is, you know, that gut feeling. Like danger. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. That when your hair stands on it. It's kind of like, you know, my uncle says deer. Deer have this innate, like, you know, sense of... Sense like of when there's a predator. Exactly. Something is wrong. Okay. They have the gut feeling and they run. So yeah. humans have that and... It's well, it's yeah. I'm kind of a believer in evolutionary psychology, and and I'm gonna bet that the book brought that up. But basically, that's how we are here because and the survivors were the ones who were probably a little bit more cautious or a little bit more aware of their surroundings. Um, those who were maybe less so didn't survive to reproduce, and so two million years of evolution as made us nervous mm -hmm. and you know for millions of years human beings would have had lots of danger from their environments everywhere you go there's a gigantic animal that's wanting to kill you you could step off of a cliff you could starve to death mm -hmm. uh there's that other tribe across the valley that wants to kill you and take your goods mm -hmm. so people are living in a very dangerous world and then this went on and on and on and on yeah and you I, know I, and that's that's kind of the thing you just outline the thesis. Oh, I did? Yeah, okay. better, better than I could, honestly. <laughs> oh, no. So thank you. But yeah, it's like, you know, if I had to summarize it, it would be don't ignore the gut feeling that you have about a situation. Okay. Because more often than not, you're right. And so he ends up uh, at the very end of the book, I'm not sure if it's the last chapter, but in one of the last chapters, he gives an example of a woman who did um, follow her gut reaction where she pushed a guy away who was making advances on her and she pushed him away. And then, you know, she goes home later that night and sees on the news that he murdered oh my three gosh. sorority women. It's kind of like a Ted Bundy situation. Where, yeah. You know. Ted Bundy was a serial killer, right? I believe so. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I've heard of him. And, and yeah, I think he was a serial killer. I don't know a thing about the guy other than I really? think he was considered to be good looking. Well, just a little personal note on me is that I tend to avoid stories about serial killers. I, under, <laughs> I Well, I understand why other people like this stuff. I get it. I, I get why people, because, hey, it's it's true, and, you know, people are curious, and true crime is, is a whole field, and tens of millions of people like to read this stuff. Mm -hmm. I, it's just not a personal preference on my part. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally get that. I was the same way, and then I started reading um, some of those books on the other side of the page where it's like yeah. human evil, and I started reading those, and I had this yeah. like, morbid curiosity, and that's yeah. what got me into actually the... The gift of fear, um, and I, th I think with Ted Bundy, it's you can again you can connect that to the gift of fear. Yeah, you know I think there was one survivor out oh. of his forty-five. He people. killed forty-five people. I don't know if that's the exact number, but I think in the end he confessed to. Oh, I know it was more than ten for sure. Oh my! Okay. And it was very very disturbing. There's a there's a reenactment on Netflix actually with uh, Zac Efron. That's very okay. popular, and um, you know it goes into the. Uh, the idea that like the I forget her name but the girl that he was dating okay um, he had this facade he was putting on for her like I'm this great guy yeah I want to take care of your daughter I want to marry you I'm this you know he was actually a law student okay so it's kind of weird <laughs> but so when you go to law school you're gonna have to look around the room and make sure that there's no Ted Bundy yeah, in make there sure there's no good looking guys there with <laughs> good looking girls <laughs> I'll just if, if there is I'll just keep my distance but um he, uh, the, the, the main girl, um, just it was actually the one who ended up calling the police on him at the very beginning of the documentary. Or okay. The um, and it was because she had that weird, you know, gut feeling. Okay. Yeah. Like that gut feeling that there's just something off about this person. Exactly. I, I don't know if it's been over a year since I've read The Gift of Fear. Okay. Um, so again, don't quote me on this. Well, it's I, gonna be. I, I do have one question about this though. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Okay, so I, I read a book a long time ago called Positive Intelligence, and this book was supposed to be kind of the sequel to the whole idea of EQ, which is emotional intelligence, and then that was supposed to be kind of a sequel to the notion of IQ, which mm -hmm. is, you know, your, your ordinary intelligence, you know, and so, I mean, people have problems with IQ tests and all the rest of that, and we could get into the details on that if people feel like it, but... But okay, so you got IQ, which measures academic style intelligence. And then you've got EQ, which was emotional. And the great thing about that was is that that could change. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if I have no ability to understand people and I'm incredibly socially awkward, your EQ can actually shoot up like a rocket. Oh, for sure. You know, yeah, you, you pe sense. people really can do that. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Well, then the PQ idea of the positive intelligence was this, is that most of us are walking around 80% of the time thinking about catastrophe or what could go wrong or what went wrong or mm -hmm. we're basically horribleizing things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, getting back to the whole idea of the evolutionary psychology, well, that was good when there were <clears throat> saber-toothed tigers or whatever running around thinking that you look like a tasty snack, you know? <laughs> so th that was adaptive, you know, mm -hmm. and it helped us get through, like, really bad situations um, and survive and get our genes into the next generation. However, that's not the best way to be happy. You know, if you're always walking around doom and gloom mm -hmm. and thinking everything is always going to go wrong. And it turned out that the author, a psychologist, believed that a lot of our high achievers in life were able to visualize positive outcomes mm -hmm. and then work for those outcomes. Okay. So you could get examples like, say, a Michael Jordan, okay. who, who would visualize while he was, before he went to sleep, he would visualize making free throws. Mm -hmm. And so then the next day he would get up and shoot, you know, 600 free throws, like every morning or something. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. I know. It was nuts. I guess that's how you become number one is you, you shoot 600 free throws a day or something <laughs> like that. Then you become number one. But, but the basic idea was is that he really believed that he could do things. And so I'm just kind of wondering with this book, The Gift of Fear, does it go into the positive side of life at all? Or does it just say that we should really be super cautious? I, I you know, it... It kind of goes into both, but more okay. so just be cautious. Mm. Listen to your body. Um, I think that's still very good advice. It, it, I, I believe so as well because, you know, like I said, like it's it's unfortunate that the woman at the beginning was taken advantage of and, you know. She had all these alarm bells going off yeah. in her mind and she kept poo-pooing those alarm bells. Yeah, she kept saying like, oh, it's just me overreacting. It's like, no, mm. that's, that's not you overreacting. That's your gut feeling telling yeah. you something's wrong, yeah. take advantage of those feelings, yeah. and act on those feelings. Um, I think that's really good advice. Oh, for sure, yeah. I, I, I just, I feel like emotion uh, <clears throat> is here to teach us things. Mm -hmm. You know, like, for example, like if somebody is not happy in their job, you know, well, why is that? You know, instead of just saying, hey, suck it up, buttercup, you know, I mean, that's fine some of the time, but... Gosh, do you really want to be at a job that you hate for 30 years? Yeah. You know, just because you're supposed to suck it up. Mm -hmm. I mean, now sometimes, like going back to the Stoics, sometimes you have to suck it up. Mm -hmm. But I think the Stoics would also say, well, another version of sucking it up is get your resume out there to 100 different places. Yeah, you have to act on, you know, the opportunities that are given to you, whether they're given to you or not. It's like the, the bowl of potatoes again. Yeah. Act If it comes your way, great. If it doesn't, great. Yeah. You've, million other opportunities yeah yeah so okay so okay um where do you want to go from here um i 
I, I love leadership by Rudy Giuliani. At first, I started reading it, and I actually stopped reading it because I was like, this is just not good. I didn't really like it. And then I put it down, revisited it uh, about March of this year, uh-huh. and I actually ended up rereading the first, I think, six chapters, and then I finished it. Okay. And um, Yeah, tell me about it, because... Let, let me just back up a little bit. I think this book was either published in the late 90s or maybe around 2002, somewhere in there. And Rudy Giuliani in the 90s had this absolutely stellar reputation among most people. And he was the mayor of New York City. And long story short, he helped the murder rate drop from roughly 2,000 murders a year down to about 600. Hundred mm-hmm. murders a year. So that was a 70% drop mm-hmm. in the murder rate. And according to other things that I've read, murder is actually the easiest crime for the police to keep track of. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder to keep track of assault because how do we know this guy really assaulted that other guy? Maybe there was two drunks in a bar at two in the morning and who really started it? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And then there's theft. Okay, so you say that thing was stolen, but how do we know you didn't misplace it? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a lot of crimes that are really kind of hard to keep track of, but murder's easy Mm -hmm. because, okay, we have a dead body and it's got four bullet wounds in it. It's it's easy to count, but theft is hard to count. Assault is is harder. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those situations are clear, but sometimes they're not. Murder Mm -hmm. is almost always pretty clear, is my understanding. So... In a nutshell, this man dropped the murder rate by something like 70%, and then that had a ripple effect on all the rest of the crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then simultaneously, I guess incidences of uh, police having bad interactions with people also went way down mm-hmm. during this whole time period. So the, the, uh, the police and the city had a pretty good relationship. Um, and then, of course, came September 11th, 2001, and then he had a 90% approval rating or higher across the United States. Mm-hmm. And people just really felt like he got us through September 11th yeah, of I be- 2001. I believe he finished writing the book in 1999. Okay. And then a couple of years after, um, he revisited it before it was published and then like rewrote it a little bit. Oh, okay. I think he gave a new forward and a new afterward after September 11th. Oh, okay. Um, okay, yeah. So yeah, so it's it's been 20 years since I've read it. So sure. do you want to kind of get into it and tell me what you picked up from it? Yeah, so I think I didn't really, you know, the, to me that book was like, you know, 50-50. It was, okay. it was good, but it also, it was okay. Um, I do recommend it though because there are some like leadership qualities that yeah. he has. Um, like taking control of the situation right away, I think was the one, if I was just going to speak on one idea of this book, it would be taking control of the situation right away. Um, you know, for him, he speaks about how he was at ground zero on September 11th and, you know, people didn't know what they were doing and he was directing people saying, you go here, you go here, you go here, bring people in. Um, and that brought, you know, comfort, not comfort, yeah. a better word, comfort to the situation. It, people, it gave people something positive to do. That's a better way of explaining it. Yes. It gave people a little bit of hope in a really dim situation. Right. And they were thinking, I think a, he said a woman came up to him um, like 10 years later. It was like, because of you, like my husband's alive right mm. now. Because he directed people out of the, you know, the floors that were able to, you know, yeah. come out. Um, and just different things like that. And so I think, like I said, just with that one point, I think that's probably the most is it's again, I'm always going to bring it back to the philosophy when you see, yeah, when you see an opportunity and you know that you can act on that opportunity, that's your, 
God-given situation yes. to act. In, yes. You know, I think it would have been very people. easy for <clears throat> any rational person to lose their rationality and just be paralyzed with fear mm-hmm. uh, during September the 11th, 2001. I guess that was so long ago. There's maybe some people listening who... We're not born yet. I guess just look it up on YouTube. But I, I mean, it's it's pretty grisly Graphic to look at. For sure. yeah, yeah, for sure. I just I mean, you have airplanes, uh, jets crashing into buildings that are maybe a hundred stories tall, and then these buildings collapse, and something like three thousand Americans got killed That's on that particular day. Uh, yeah, and so I mean, it's 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 rough. It's very very rough. Um, and just the fact that this man kept his head at the time and directed people and just, and like you said, just encouraged people, gave them something positive to do. It gave them hope. Yeah. In a really, really dark situation. Yeah. For sure. Okay, so take control of situations to the degree that you can. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else from that book that, that really stood out or should we move on? We can move on. Yeah, okay. that's, that's pretty much the only okay. book. Have you read this one on the list here, <clears throat> The Way of the Seal? I haven't actually. I've okay. read I've read bits and pieces of it, but I've never read it all the way through. Okay, it's, okay. it's very similar to leadership, where it has like you know a story of uh, Mark Devine and like his experiences as a SEAL. Um, I, like I said, I can't really speak about it okay. too much because I don't want to speak about something I haven't. Right, read. I, I haven't read it either. I was hoping you'd enlighten me, but hey, my bad for bringing it up. No, you're totally fine. Do you do you know Jocko Willink? I love Jocko Willink. Okay, yeah, I know he has a book. I've I've been meaning to get it, but I'm saving up for a trip right now. Okay. So okay. for sure, I, I I listen to his podcast, though. I will buy you a copy of Discipline Equals Freedom. I, I heard you and Matt speaking about that. Okay. What, what What's that book? About? Well, it's they're short little essays that are maybe anywhere from two to five pages long at the most. And they just really are amazing. Uh, The one that immediately comes to my mind, my absolute favorite is on page 58 and it's called Good. Hmm. And I I wish I could quote it word for word, but in a nutshell, um, so he is chatting with one of his people underneath him and the man comes up to him and says, Jocko, the the mission's been canceled. Mm -hmm. And they all really wanted to go on the mission. And so then Jocko, you know, is about to say something and and the end... Oh, I think I know this one. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is yeah, you're fine. Good? Yeah. The guy underneath him says, I know what you're going to say before you say it. And Jocko mm-hmm. says, what am I going to say? And he says, you're going to say good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jocko says, yeah, I am going to say good because that's how I am. Mm-hmm. Hey, if the mission gets canceled, good. More time to train. Mm-hmm. And this applies to just everything. I didn't get the job. Good. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity to fix up my resume and to polish up my interviewing skills. Like uh, you know, hey, I broke my leg. Good. More time to read books. I mean, I mean, it can be pretty severe, but mm-hmm. the whole idea is, is it, it made me stop and think, well, what's good about a given situation? Getting back to stoicism, that mm-hmm. maybe things are very, very tough. Maybe things are very, very dire. But if there's 10 bad things about a situation, there's probably still one good thing about a situation. Yeah, it, it's kind of like if you were to take like a box. Yeah. And you're looking in the box and you're like, you know, like this, this sucks. Like that, you know, X happened, let's say for a situation like, you know, a breakup. Let's say you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. That right. sucks. And, you know, you say that sucks, but at least I still have X over here. And it could be something as menial as a toothbrush. Like, you know, right. at least I have a toothbrush. Right. At least I have shoes. Right. At least I'm healthy. At least I'm living. And 
yeah. I, that's I feel like you know from what it sounds like that book and that you know that uh, good is what yeah. you called it. Yeah, that sounds like it kind of that's what that is. Is like you know you have to be grateful of you know whatever. Comes what do you ever you have instead? And sure. and then he always tied it directly to the incident. So um, gosh, I hate to do that with a romantic breakup because people do get their hearts broken. But I don't know. Let's say somebody does break up with somebody else and so now you've got a guy and he was dating a girl and now this guy is all alone and she just broke up with him and so then he could say good maybe now is an opportunity for me to look in the mirror mm -hmm. and see what I could be doing better as a man mm -hmm. or maybe now is a good time for me to put the rest <coughs> of my life in order you know mm -hmm. to put my job situation or my school situation or my money situation or my health it, maybe this is now it's, I have an opportunity to work on on other things that I've sort of put aside for a little while. I so, like that. yeah, that's kind of the whole good idea. Yeah, I like that a lot. Okay. Um, do we want to do anything else on self-growth, or should we move down to politics and American government? Yeah, sure, we can move on. Okay. Sure. The ones that I'm super curious about are either Aristotle or Plato. If if you if you can dive into either one of those, but yeah. but take it wherever you want to take it. Read like if there's a different one that appeals to you, let's go with that. Okay. Yeah, we can. Yeah. So uh, I'll start with politics by yourself, okay. just because it's a basic one. Okay. He, you know, at first I thought it was going to be him outlining how government should be. Okay. But it's not just government. It's okay. like more of democracy. Okay. If that makes sense, because the Romans were the first ones to have like not true democracy, but I'd say. You mean like, the Greeks? Like a, oh, the Greeks. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. thank you for the correction. It was like a republic, a republic, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they had voting. Mm -hmm. And then in certain cases, I think they had direct democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, direct democracy is everybody votes and maybe everybody votes on everything. Mm -hmm. Or there are just, yeah, there's maybe no representatives per se mm -hmm. that we vote on topics. Yeah. That the whole, I mean, I'm not, I don't think they did this in every single situation, but they, yeah, that's they had a wide variety of things. Yeah, you know, they had sometimes they had representatives, sometimes they did direct democracy. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it was more like you know if you have a hundred people, whoever gets the fifty first vote wins. Yes. Um, and so Plato comes along with Republic. Um, I, I, he may have been before Aristotle. I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I think they're very close to contemporaneous. I don't know. Yeah. I feel bad. Uh, no, me too. That's <laughs> yeah, uh, totally fine. And uh, he comes along with this idea of like a republic, and he's okay. like, okay, well, like you know, that's what we have today is a democratic or democratic republic in the United right. States, where it's not a majority of rules, but you have different branches of government. And he outlines like you know, like not you know specifically like a president, a Congress, and a Supreme uh -huh. Court. But he outlines, like, there needs to be checks and balances within mm. people so that humans cannot gain too much power over their, you know, Right. We don't want to get a situation, I suppose, where, <clears throat> I don't know, we vote in somebody who then becomes an emperor, who then just runs roughshod over mm -hmm. everybody. And, I don't know, let's say the emperor says, hey, you know, everybody would really like public executions. Let's <laughs> just do one of those once a week, you know, because, yeah. hey... We're bored. We need some entertainment around here. Yeah. You know, so you don't want to have an emperor who's going to trample everybody's rights. But but you could get there just with strict voting if there's no checks and balances, mm -hmm. if there's no limits on power. Mm -hmm. and, in, and we could talk about this in a minute. But there's a book um, on the human evil called Ordinary Men. Okay. Uh, yeah. Police battalion. I'm not sure if you've ever read. Well, it. I, I have not read it, and I've heard about it, and I know I should read it. And my problem is, I, I guess I'm like every person who likes to read that there's a stack at home of about 10 books 
that I should be getting into. And in my head, there's a stack of 500 books that I should be getting into. And so I know that I should be, I know of that book. Mm-hmm. And well, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, it's, it's, an, it's, you know, again, for anyone listening, if you are going to read it, please be warned, it is very graphic. Yeah, it's, um, it's tough. It's, I, know, I know about it. Go ahead. It's, yeah. very, it's a very tough read. My girlfriend, shout out to Carly, recently <laughs> got me, um, a, uh, for our anniversary, she got me the book in okay. 1984 because I was like, you know, I want to read about you know, I'm, I'm human right now, evil. You want to read about human evil? Yep. I, I'm gonna like I've read bits and pieces of the Gulag Archipelago. Um, Me too. And because uh, it's three volumes. Yeah, it's, it's two thousand pages. Yeah. I've read about the first <clears throat> two hundred, and I really, really like it. Mm-hmm. And I want to get back into it. Yeah, for sure. Same here. And um, I, I think I have like a. I just with it's actually a forward by Jordan B. Peterson. It's like yeah. A, like a condensed version. Yeah. Okay. You have the condensed version. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna read that as soon as I'm done with my LSAT. Okay. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, you know, ordinary men goes into the idea of what you just said with the Republic, which is like you know these people, you know who you know because that's that's something that everybody thinks is that these people who did this you know horrible genocide right were these you know maniacal you know, malevolent, like, right. uh, psychopaths. But it, that's, well, that's yeah. not the case at all. Because it was about a police battalion in mm-hmm. Germany, mm-hmm. and I believe, okay, so this battalion, mm-hmm. or however they're organized, um, but, you know, they're just policemen. And mm-hmm. they're organized, of course, like, they've got a precinct and all the rest of this, and um, so it's a department, and this is in the 1920s, and, hey, it's just an ordinary police department. Granted, Germany in the 1920s is absolutely falling apart, and there's a lot of street violence, and there's there's competing political gangs actually shooting each other. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the National Socialists were killing the communists, and this is going on in the streets. But in any case, this is like an ordinary group of policemen. Well, then Hitler takes over, mm-hmm. and then once Hitler takes over, these guys who were just ordinary men become absolute savage brutes. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is, is that it sort of happens slowly over time. Mm-hmm. So, and these are fathers, husbands, guys who have a dog, people who donate to their local charity, people who help the old lady across the street. It, it is extremely disturbing how the author, I think it's uh, Christopher Brown, Browning, uh, walks you through their psychological descent into evil. Mm. It begins with the Yochfo massacre of 1942. Which I don't know about, so go ahead. So Yochfo was an area in Poland by Sobibor, which okay. is in western, or I'm sorry, eastern Poland. East, okay. Um, and uh, so actually, back up a little bit. Um, you know, he talks about how he's like, you know, the, you know, the thesis of the book is that anybody can become this way. That's and that's what's really tough about it. Exactly. It's like, hey, guys, these are just ordinary cops. It mm-hmm. would be great if we could just say, you know what, I'm a great guy, and that other person over there is a murderer, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a bad guy, but I'm a great guy. I'm a good guy. I'm one of the good guys. Mm-hmm. But the thesis of the book is, you know, anybody could have a slow slide into becoming a demon. And that's that's what he, he... I think the first chapter of the book is only like a page long. And it, it begins with um, telling him how right before the massacre, they, they woke him up at like four in the morning at their time. Okay. And their captain came to them and <clears throat> told him what was going to happen. And of the, I think it was like uh, 50 or so men in the battalion, Yeah. Um, he told them like what was going to happen. And we can go into that in a minute. Yeah. Um, 
and he, I think of the 50, he said, you can leave if you want, you know, you can leave, but. <clears throat> like think, not participate yeah, in not what participate in the massacre. I think okay. eight of the 50 or 100 or whatever the number was left. And he, he begins with saying like, okay, that was, that was the chapter. Let's, let's back up a little bit to these men. And he goes into detail of these like singular men okay. of how they were too, I think the average age in the battalion was 37. So they, okay. they were too old to be Hitler youth and they were too, you know, young to be like, you know, Hitler's generation. So they right. were right in the middle of like, you know, they are normal people. They yeah. had no they missed, outside influence. They missed the whole Nazi conditioning. Exactly. Which if people don't know about it, okay, so one of the first things Hitler actually did in 1933 when he took over was to absolutely remake the schools. Mm -hmm. So they made everything racial, for example, in a very negative way. Um, and they just trained people to believe in national socialist ideology. It was this, true brainwashing. It was it was total brainwashing, and and so then that was the youth. That was, but I mean, hey, if you were twenty years old in nineteen thirty three, you missed all that. Mm -hmm. You missed all that. So yeah. these guys were thirty seven. Mm -hmm. They missed all that. Yeah, they didn't have any influence from Hitler. They were just doing their jobs, and they. You know, they, as the government was changing in 33, they were about, you know, again, the average age was 37, you know, take nine years away from that. You know, so at this point, too, they should be independent adults who are standing on their own two feet, exactly. who have a moral compass, and, you know, especially as police officers, they should be upholding good things exactly. in the community. Mm -hmm. But then what happened? Well, so it's, again, you know, please, for anyone listening, be aware, it's very graphic. Yeah. He... Again, Yochfo is where it began. And they walk into Yochfo and they say, you know, there's going to be women, children, old men, old women. Shoot all the old women and men on site. They're mm. of no use to us. You know, okay. leave the women and the children. Take the men who are between the ages of 18 and 25, I think is what it was, okay. to the camps to work. They didn't do any of that. They shot all the women and children on site. And if they didn't shoot them on site, they put them in a train car not to be you know, taken away to a camp, but to be executed in the forest. So they, they, I think it was a five kilometer walk into the forest. They took out 10 of the most strong men and had them dig this mass grave, probably about as big as this room from what okay. I understand. It was about 10 feet deep, like okay. 30 feet wide. Um, if you can make those dimensions in your head, I'm not really good at geometry. Okay. Um, but, uh, so they end up doing that, and so they had them lay down next to the grave, okay. face down, arms behind their back, and, sorry, it's kind of hard for me to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I understand. Again, like, I had to stop reading at some points because it was just so disturbing. Just so disturbing to read. He, they would take the rifle with the uh, knife that was on it and put it in their necks because that was the quickest way to kill them, and they would shoot them. Mm. And there were some men who, you know, and they did this with, again, there's 50 to 100 men in this battalion, so they had... I think thousands of thousands and thousands of people that they did from four in the morning until midnight the next day. Gosh. It was over 16 hours of just brutal, just, brutal murder. Yeah, basically, I guess it's like a factory. Mm -hmm. And so that happened, and there were men who were, like, excusing themselves. There were men who were throwing up. There were some men who were so shaken they missed, and they would shoot them in the back of the head, and their, you know, their, yeah, their they, head would go be, all over themselves, yes. and they would just throw up after that, and it was just very disturbing. And then... The author brings it back and says, okay, well, like these men, you know, everybody who did that, there were some men who excused themselves, and then they go to Lomazi. I think that's how you pronounce it. I, d I don't know. Lomazi is another town in, in Poland? Poland. Okay. Same thing happened. Okay. And But it was worse. Less men opted out. 
and, and again, they gave them the choice every time. You can opt out if you don't want to do this, mm. but less men opted out. And then it goes to, I forget the name of, there's like four or five different um, cities which these massacres happen in. And in the last massacre, um, I'm sorry, in the third massacre, you have all these people who, um, you know, because there was during the Nuremberg trials in the 60s. Yeah. Um, where they were like, you know, how did you justify shooting these children? Because they were like four or five-year-old children. Right. And one of the men testified by saying, you know, I would only shoot children. And they were like, well, why would you what? do that? And he said, well, because the way that I justified it was I would let their mother be shot and killed first. Hmm. And I would say to myself, okay, well, no child is, no child should live without a mother. And so I shot the ch- child in the head. And it's extremely, extremely disturbing to yeah. think about and then you get to the very end of the book when the last massacre happens and no man opted out. They all were making jokes about how, you know, they, they call it's the, the German word was Judenfree, which means okay. free of Jews. Free of Jews, okay. Very easy to understand. It sounds like Yeah, it, it sounds means. like what it is. And uh, you know, they would they would make jokes about how they would shoot people in the head and their brains would go everywhere and then and, and again, like it goes into the psychological aspect of these ordinary people who grew up in non-Nazi Germany just committed these atrocious acts not right. because... And they, again, the, I'm going to reiterate that again. They had the power every single time to opt out and say no, but they chose to do it. And, you know, there's arguments that say, oh, well, you know, they had to because... You know, right, because, well, we're in this society <laughs> where if you don't participate the way they want you to participate, then the wrath of the Nazis will come down on you. If they, again, that wasn't the case, though, because every time they gave them the choice to opt out, and it was very, you know, just very disturbing about how they go into... Right, right, and, just these, you know, and I, do they provide some of the rationale? Because I, I'm just going to guess here that sometimes people are thinking, you know, hey, everybody else is doing it. Like you said, maybe it was like 42 out of 50 or just or whatever the numbers were, maybe only eight people opted out at first. So mm-hmm. then the next time, well, you know, hey, gosh, this is just a tiny group that opted out. I think I want to be in the majority. Or, or maybe people are thinking, I'm not going to get a promotion, mm-hmm. or I'm not going to get a raise. Or they say they're not going to punish me, but maybe they're going to punish me. Well, that was the thing, is that all these men were already very secure in their, their spots with their, as the police battalion. Okay. They were like, you know, they were making salary, you know, or what we equivalent to salary. Today. Right, right, right. And they, you know, they were not, they had nothing to lose and nothing to gain. Okay. They were, they were just, if they did it, they didn't do it. If they, they did do it, then... I remember when I was younger reading some psychologists who basically split um, a lot of these evil actions into one of two categories. One was obedience, and then the other one was conformity. Mm -hmm. And obedience is, somebody's telling me to do this, and so I go and do it. And then there's conformity, which this seems to be the case here, because nobody's really telling them to do this because they do have the opt-out option. Um, and conformity is nobody tells me to do something, but since everybody else is doing it, mm-hmm. you know, for example, if I'm in a new building to me and then there's a fire alarm and then everybody, you know, decides, okay, we're going to head for the exits. Mm-hmm. I just follow the group. Yeah. I, I have no idea where I'm actually going. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose, you know, in a weird case, maybe we're actually going to be walking straight toward the fire. Mm-hmm. But I don't know because I've never been in this building before. I don't know where the fire is. But hey, I'm just... And nobody's telling me to come with everybody else. Mm-hmm. 
you know, yeah. I, I'm just doing it. Or another example, when people get into an elevator, oftentimes they will face toward the doors and they won't talk to each other for like nine floors. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, a conforming behavior. Yeah, they don't want to cause conflict, for sure. Right. And, and that's, you know, again, like, I, I, I apologize for, you know, I sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but yeah. again, like, they had the option every time to yeah. opt out. And every time there was... What, what do we draw from this then? I mean, because what do we draw from... Uh, this in terms of either psychology of pe- of people or or philosophy. What what do we what do we take away from this? A little bit of all of those. I would say that you know not you specifically. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, you as a human being think uh-huh. that you would never commit those acts right. of atrocity. Right. But put in the situation, I would say eighty five percent of people would find themselves mm-hmm. committing those acts. And you know, I can't speak for myself because I I don't know. I don't know how I would react. Right. I, I like to think that I wouldn't right. do those things. But it's like you just said, where it's like, you know, you want to go with the crowd, you want to do that, you know, and anybody can become evil. a monster. Yeah, exactly. Anybody can become a monster. Yeah. Um, well, I always kind of felt like this is another good point about studying philosophy mm-hmm. and psychology is that you think about situations like this. And so I, I always used to meet a lot of people who would say, well, you don't really know what you would do until you're in that situation. Mm-hmm. Then I always thought, well, that's why we think about this stuff ahead of time. Stoicism, exactly. It's yeah. like you said, it's like, do you, do you freeze up in that situation? Right. Do you act on it? Do you right. not act on it? It's, it's exactly what you said, you right. know, coming back to your point a while ago. Like, you would have to decide, okay, so like, let's just say that our country had a incredibly negative takeover by a tyrannical figure or cabal of people. And let's say that there were going to be executions of innocent people and let's say I was in a position like this where hey maybe I'm a police officer well then I would have to ask myself would I resist and okay let's say I choose to resist well now I since I'm thinking about this ahead of time I know well I could get shot you know if if I am I willing to do that and okay it's very comfortable and easy for me to say this now but yeah I would rather get shot than do the wrong thing now, like, I mean, it's easy for me to say exactly. in this situation, but it's also good for me to say because I am thinking about it in advance and I don't have to punt and say, well, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I truly don't know what I would do, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, just the fact that I'm thinking about it mm-hmm. right now, I, I can choose, well, what do I want to do? And mm-hmm. and I would rather die a slow, painful, agonizing death than to inflict death upon an innocent person. For sure. So that's my philosophical statement. I like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's the benefit of philosophy is that you do ask yourself, what would I do in specific tough situations? And then you know. Mm-hmm. Then you know, yes, there will be negative consequences. I am freely choosing those. For sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, that's why I love to read is because I, these ideas are not my ideas. These are ideas of other people that I'm just reiterating and yeah. learning and applying to my own life. And, you know, again, like, it's very hard to read books like Ordinary Men. Yes. I really do think it's it's a necessary... It's a necessary thing to do. For sure, because you have to realize <clears throat> and, excuse me, um, and, and understand that, like, that could be you. It if, could be. If in the worst case scenario, what would you do? You know, would you inflict harm on other people or would you want to like you said die a slow and painful death like what would you do again most people if not all i would say i bet my next paycheck on it would probably just choose to live and not cause trouble and to conform with everyone around them rather than 
Right. Right. It's like, I'm just going to go along to get along for as long as I possibly can. And then when a really difficult situation arises, now I truly don't know what I would do. Yeah. And that's, and that's the other idea that I wanted to touch upon. The, probably the last idea yeah. on that book was that, you know, you know, there, there may be that argument for, okay, well, you know, at the beginning, these people were just doing what they were told. They were conforming. But like I said, in the end, they were making jokes about it. Right. They were bragging about it. Right. They were bragging about the, the things that the people were begging them. Right. Before they were dying, they were, they were making fun of. Like somebody's asking for maybe a little bit of water. And then they're like, oh, yeah. And then making fun of the dude who's asking for, or the child, making fun of the child who's asking for some water. There was one where he was, you know, the man who would only shoot children would make fun of children for whining that their parents were falling down into the grave. Oh, my God. And it was just, again, it's a very disturbing book, but it was one of the better books that I've read as far as, okay. not as far as the content of the book, obviously, but as, as far as the quality of the explanation of the thesis. Yeah. Of, you know, you could become this. Yeah. Every chapter is only like 15 pages. The book total is about 300 pages. Each chapter is about 15 pages, but okay. then the final chapter is about 50 pages. Okay. And so, because it really goes into just the psychological aspects of okay. it. Okay. Okay. And does, gosh, maybe I'm, I'm repeating an earlier question. I don't know if I am. Does it explain ultimately why we do this? Uh, is it just that people are choosing the easiest route out at every step of the way? Because because people's transformation is, okay, five years before Hitler, none of these guys in their wildest imagination, most likely, would think that they would ever be doing these atrocities. Then, pretty soon, okay, Hitler takes over, and now people are asking us to do little things that are wrong. And then they're asking us to do medium-sized things that are wrong, and then eventually we are committing murder, mm -hmm. and then we are committing mass murder, mm -hmm. and then we're joking about it. So, I mean, there's a progression. Does the author, hey, to me, I'm just guessing, but my explanation would be is people are consistently choosing the easiest thing to do. They're choosing the path of least resistance every single time. Mm -hmm. That would be my guess. Yeah, that's 100% right. And then he goes off, builds off of that and says, like, people need to know to think for themselves and to choose their own course of action mm. rather than what someone else wants for them in their lives. Okay. And so, you know, had any of these policemen stood out and said, this is not right, which, again, some of them did, um, I, I would say they did that further in the massacres. Again, they massacred something like 42,000 people with oh just gosh. their battalion. If just one of them had come out later in these massacres at Lomazi or, you know, even Yochfo at the beginning, okay. you know, they could have, I, I believe prevented thousands of people from dying. But yes. again, we never will know, unfortunately. Well, yeah, if the whole battalion would have not done this mm -hmm. and gone on strike, mm -hmm. you know, well, that might have gummed up the system a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I did a different episode with Emily Wapker on the Holocaust because she used to teach this class. And oh. so I'm just going to ask people to maybe back up and listen to that episode if they like just because she's an expert and has really studied this stuff in depth. But, she's but, probably read that book, and I I, I bet. I, I don't know. She's read a ton of different things. But, but Rita, really, I really appreciate your explanation of that one. Um, okay, is there anything else in the politics and American government category that you would like to discuss? I think I'm good, yeah. I think okay. the only one is... Just to touch on it for like just a second. Yeah, yeah, please do. Constitution. Yeah. I think everybody should read it so that they know their rights and they know what they can and can't do and 
what people can and can't do to them. Right. So that's all I have to say about that is yeah. know your rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all right. How about religious and Christian <clears throat> ideas? You have six books listed. You have uh, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, The Terror of Demons by Kennedy Hall, three by Billy Graham, The Secret to Happiness, Death and the Life After, Answer to Life's Problems. And finally, you have one by Max uh, Lucado, if mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing his name correctly, mm -hmm. uh, which is called Come Thirsty. So where do you want to... I have not read any of these. I'm embarrassed to say. I actually read these books in that exact order that oh. I listed them. So I, The Case for Christ was Lee Strobel. Um, anyone listening, highly recommend it if you're a Christian or Catholic. I'm personally a Catholic. Um, you know, that's probably the most important thing in my life, I would say. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I've always wanted to read that book. And I just finished it a few weeks ago, actually. Okay. Because, you know, I've, I've wanted to read it, but I just am like, ah, well, you know, I don't want to off as like a Jesus freak even to myself uh -huh. but then I started reading it and yeah. it actually is Lee Strobel was an atheist I don't know if you've read it no 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 I haven't read any of these and that's, that's why I'm, I'm dying for you to tell me about them oh. and then that'll make me read something mm -hmm. so Lee Strobel was an atheist um, and so there was a time in his life where he went to Yale Law School and instead of becoming an attorney actually he became a legal analyst for uh, cases in like I think it was Boston and New York okay and so uh he comes at it from a very critical and analytical perspective. Okay. And so for me, someone who reads, you know, legal writing all the time, and yeah. like, you know, is studying for the law school admissions test where that's all it is, is perfect for me because he's outlining it in such an easy to understand way, only for me, I would say. And so he comes at it because um, his wife at the time converted to Christianity and, you know, okay, so is, is it two atheists who are married, and then she converts, mm -hmm. and then he starts looking into it? He starts looking into it, and instead of, you know, because he told her, he's like, oh, I don't want you to become some prude. You're going to, you know, make me go to church every Sunday. And he's like, she actually became this incredible person where she just, like, radiated love and happiness. Oh, wow. And so he started to look into it. And so the book um, is him going around the United States speaking with different historians speaking with different psychologists, speaking with different priests and, ca and Catholic bishops. Oh my gosh, this about, sounds really good. Mm -hmm. And it's from, again, it's from an analytical perspective and he asks some really tough questions. Like, and, and again, like it's from a legal perspective. Yeah, so he yeah. starts off each chapter with like a legal story that he covered. For example, mm. there was one where um, a man was accused of shooting a police officer Okay. Um, because there was a gun found in a bush near an area where a police officer had been shot near his home. Okay. But after looking into it, there was contemporary, I'm sorry, um, I forget the name of it, I apologize, but there's a certain type of evidence that went into it that essentially um, acquitted the guy of the murder. Okay. And so, uh, you know, he, he uses that idea and is like, is there any kind of, you know, blank evidence that supports Jesus actually walked after his death? Mm. And then he goes into... You know, the idea of like, again, that, that's also a very brutal book because it goes into the Passion of the Christ. Oh, very okay. vivid detail. And uh, it was actually a historian who outlined to him, you know, no one survives a crucifixion. Okay. They're beaten before, you know, he goes into it. Um, I mean, then, yeah, crucifixion was designed to be, well, it's the death penalty. Oh, for sure. And yeah. it was also designed to be as brutal as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, the opposite of that for the death penalty would be something like lethal injection, mm -hmm. which the whole idea is, is, well, you just go to sleep. Mm -hmm. You know, because in America, I, I don't want to dovetail too much on this, but I think our history of executions has always been, 
how do we make this just a little bit more gentle? Mm -hmm. Because we started off with hangings, I believe, mm -hmm. and things like firing squads, and then we said, you know, the electric chair would probably be maybe a little nicer, yeah. and then, well, now we're up to lethal injection. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, you just go to sleep. That's kind of the, in other words, yeah, and then the opposite of all this then is a crucifixion, which is designed to be as vicious as can it's be. humiliating. Yeah. And then there's, they yeah. strip you naked and they beat you with a, a whip with glass and rocks on it. I think at one point, you know, his spine was showing. Because oh my gosh. Because the scourging of the pillar. Um, and again, as a Catholic, it really opens your eyes to, okay, this is what he did for me. He this year. Because you always hear like, oh, Jesus died on the cross for you. And it's right. It's, yeah, yeah, we kind of leave out the blood and the gore. Mm -hmm. And I again and the humiliation exactly and it, again it's like ordinary men if you really want to understand this concept you have to go into the, the darker parts of it and yeah. really explore and you know and then he talks about that and then he talks about like with a psychologist about how like people cannot see group hallucinations like Jesus appeared to like I think it was over two thousand people oh and it's there's like, there's no such thing as mass hallucination is that the yeah idea? that's that's the thesis of the one chapter is okay that, you know, people cannot you know hallucinations are you know. Personal. 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 Okay, so like if I'm seeing somebody who's not there because I'm hallucinating, that does not mean that my class of 20 students is also, you know, seeing, I don't know, my great-great-grandfather. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Got it. And uh, so it's like the road to Emmaus is the okay. one that he talks about. It's like, you know, you have these two apostles, forgive me, I forget the names of the apostles. Uh -huh. They're walking and they see this man and they talk to him and talk to him for oh, hours and dinner with him. And then he just disappears once they realize it's Christ. And... Two people more, I mean, again, it's just basic psychology cannot see the same right. hallucination of the same thing. Right. And then you have, you know, different things of saying, like, you know, at the time women were seen as, like, less than men. And you can make the case that the first Christians were women because they found the tomb. Right. Mary Magdalene. Right, right, and, right. And so it's, it's, it's very, very... For anyone listening, if or you yourself, if you yeah. really no, I, I want to read this now. This sounds really. I can give it to you if you want. It's a it's a great book. Okay. I recommend it to everybody okay. who's a Christian, Catholic, any any of the okay. you know, anything in between. Well, I bet an atheist would find <clears throat> it entertaining because it was written by a former atheist. Exactly, and at the very it end, it could tickle somebody's brain. Exactly. If, if I'm an atheist and I read this and I want to have my brain tickled, yeah. okay. And those are the best kind of books. Are the ones that make you think. Yeah. The ones that not change your mind, but make you yeah. evaluate your position. That's right. That's and right. again, as a Catholic, that just made my faith stronger because, again, you always hear Jesus died on the cross for you, but you don't really know right. until you take a deep dive into it and realize, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, what really went into this sacrifice right. and why that sacrifice meant. Right. Or what it meant, excuse right. me. Right. That this all happens to an innocent man. Mm -hmm. I like the layers of this book, too. Keep going. Keep going. What That's, were some of the other chapters? Uh, I think he talks about, at one point, like the miracles, how, okay. like the men and women who he healed, like the lepers and the blind and the raising from the dead. Uh -huh. And there's one where a historian talks about like the Dead Sea Scrolls and like, you know, the, the authenticity of the, of the, uh, the, uh, the Gospels, excuse me. And, uh, you know, because one of the arguments was how can these, you know, Gospels differ so much? Uh -huh. And so... You know, the, essentially the uh, the Catholic bishop he speaks to is like, you know, if Jesus throws up a red ball in Mark and he throws up a blue ball in John, uh -huh. what's the main point? He uh -huh. throws up a ball. Okay. You know, if he, you know, if he healed a blind or he healed a leper, what's the what's the main message? He healed the sick. Okay. And um, again, there's like, and then 
I'm sorry, I'm trying to remember, but he goes to a historian in New York who's this like, you know, lavish uh, Jewish man. Okay. And even he acknowledges that Jesus was a real person mm. who reportedly performed these miracles. Yeah. And, and nobody can explain why. Yeah. And it's not like these people were, you know, pretending to be, you know, le- lepers or blind or anything because their whole lives they're this way. And Jesus comes along and heals them. And it's just, it's one of the mysteries of faith, I guess we'll never know. Yep. But it's, it really, really is an amazing book. Probably in my top five books, I would say. That, it just sounds really, really excellent Mm -hmm. to me. Um, Very entertaining. And uh, when I say entertaining, I also mean enlightening. Mm -hmm. And filled with wisdom, but just also filled with good stories. Um, Is there another one from the religious and Christian idea section of books that you would like to discuss? Uh... Just to speak on it just for a second, The Terror of Demons. Yeah, please do. Um, that book is really good. Um, I read that right after The Case for Christ. Okay. Um, it essentially outlines, like, you know, St. Joseph is known as The Terror of Demons. Okay. He's mentioned in the Bible, I think, three times. Yeah, okay, of, that sounds about right. Which is... I'm estimating. Really str- but yeah, yeah, which is strange to think because he's, you know, the adopted father of Jesus. Right, he's incredibly important. I don't think he has a single line of dialogue. Yep, no dialogue, just mentioned. It's, you know, Joseph wanted to divorce Mary quietly because he thought she cheated, but then the angel came to him. And uh, it goes into how when they perform exorcisms, he is the terror of demons who mm. drives them away, him and Mary. And so if you are experiencing, you know, bad thoughts or you're, you know, trying to pray away something that's bad, you pray to St. Joseph because he is the terror of demons who drives them away because they're scared of him. Okay. I think that's a really... It's it's more of a book about, I would say, not just about St. Joseph, but just about the importance of being in a state of grace and why the sacrament of reconciliation is so important Mm. as a Catholic or a Christian. Um, Because without it, you're... Yeah, okay, because briefly explain for people what reconciliation is. So in the Catholic faith, uh, we believe that if you... So I guess I should outline the the sacrament. Yeah. So there's seven sacraments in the Catholic faith. There's like, you know... uh, Baptism. Baptism, weddings. Confirmation. uh, Confirmation, then there's one, reconciliation. Reconciliation is the one where you can receive multiple times in your life. Um, The other ones you really only receive once, maybe twice. And... um, so you go into a what we call a confessional area with just you and a priest. You either sit face to face or behind a wall, and you begin by <clears throat> asking the Father to forgive you. And the priest essentially acts in the place of Christ, and so you are confessing your sins to Christ. Right is what we believe. And the idea is to articulate your sins, your crimes against God and humanity out loud. Mm-hmm. And what this does is, I think from a psychological standpoint, is, well, hey, it's good, you admit it. Mm -hmm. But then also, too, somebody who is subbing for God, standing in the place of God, forgives you. And so, you know, you you are honest. Honesty is good. And, but it's also private because the priest is not going to broadcast it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then you get forgiveness, Mm -hmm. which is good because some people do bad things, but they never get any forgiveness for them. And that's got to be psychologically very heavy. I, I believe so, because there was a period in my life where I you know, wasn't doing anything bad, but I was just like, I just feel like I could do better. And this was where, I guess this was my sophomore year of high school when okay. I started to take my faith seriously. Okay. Um, went to reconciliation, and I would confess my sins, and I think it was actually Father Dan, if you remember Father yeah, Dan. Yeah, 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 Father Dan. Yeah. Um, I think he's in Lawrence now, actually. But, okay. Yeah, I, I spoke with him, and you know, he's like, you know, you need to articulate them better because when you hear yourself, 
you're like, you know, I've I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've right. been gluttonous, I've you know been lustful with my actions, things uh-huh. like that. When you yeah. actually hear yourself say what you've done, you're like, wow, that I, I don't like that. I don't like that I'm the one who you know, did lied that. To my parents. I'm, I don't like the one. Yeah, shoplifted at Target. Cheated on a test. Yeah, right. Same yeah. thing. Not not that. Okay, you did shoplift at Target. I just tossed that out there. <laughs> not yet, at least. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's it's really cool because you you go in there and you know if you're really sorry for what you did you know the catholic faith tells you that god forgives you and it goes into what they call the the forgotten part of god's uh-huh. mind where god says okay well like if you promise you're not going to do it again okay and you are really sorry yeah do say these certain amount of prayers what we call of uh, an act of contrition which is saying that you're extremely sorry for what you've done yeah and um if you do that and you're really sorry for what you've done then you know you're forgiven yeah which i i just think that's a great tradition a great sacrament that we have and and i i feel like everybody feels good if they can just unburden their soul a little bit there's an old saying confession is good for the soul and so i don't know if a catholic said that first but you know the funny thing is is okay i've read the alcoholics anonymous book twice the big book of aa and i completely recommend it because okay i'm not an alcoholic but i have friends who are and because i wanted to help them i wanted to understand what's going on and the thing is, if you look at the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which have been copied for every other organization, like Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, Debtors Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, you name it, all these 12-step programs all have, uh, I think it's the fourth step, where you have to go around and make restitution for the wrongs that you've committed. because. Okay, so like alcoholics, I know a bunch of alcoholics, a lot of them will do things like yell at people, go off on people for absolutely no reason, uh, sometimes worse things like steal, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, assault people mm-hmm. while drunk, etc. There's mm-hmm. They do a bunch of bad stuff. Yeah. Some of it's maybe not big and epic, but then sometimes it is. Sometimes they do the worst stuff that you can possibly think of. Yeah. Well, once they get sober, they confess. Mm-hmm. They run around and they they make restitution. That's one of the steps. And they, I feel like you, yeah. know, you take it from an objective standpoint and you see, yeah, that's kind of crap. You do. You make a list. You make a list of, okay, uh, who are all the people that I stepped on, that I offended, that I, mm-hmm. I ripped off, that I stole from, just whatever it might be. And then you go around and you apologize. And I just think it's interesting because, okay, chapter two of that book is we agnostics. Hmm. So, I mean, the whole premise of the book oftentimes is, is that, you know, our best thinking got us to this place of alcoholism. And there was just a lot of skeptics who became alcoholics or other forms of addicts. And I think it's fine to be a skeptic, but many of them wound up in kind of a bad place, you know, in an addictive setting. And so... I just think, hey, agnostic, that's kind of the opposite of a faithful believer Mm -hmm. in some form of religion. And so if they've got a version of confession, and if we've got a version of confession, it seems like confession really truly must be good for the soul, because a lot of people have it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like when you confess with, at least it sounds like with that, it's not so much for the other people as it is for your own internal dialogue. Yes, yes. You know, even if that person, you know, you beat someone up when you're drunk. You know, that person doesn't forgive you because their medical bills and their right. black eye and right. their broken arm. <laughs> right. You know what? Like, even though you don't forgive me, at least I can forgive myself because yeah. I understand my actions. Yeah. I understand how my actions have led to that bad action from happening. 
and I can at least forgive myself. And I think right. that's also a main point of reconciliation is, you know, God does forgive me. That's right. But I have to also forgive myself and realize, you know, I'm human. Again, I, and I want to say this, I'm human. I sin. Everybody sins. And, you know, when I go to reconciliation, which I try to go once a month, if uh-huh. not every other month, uh-huh. you know, it, again, it's it's more so like I'm acknowledging what I'm doing. Yeah, now. it's and a fresh start. Exactly. And it's, it's a fresh start. And for people who feel doomed and pessimistic about life, a fresh start is what they need. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. Okay. Well, gosh, it sounds like I ought to be reading that one too. Okay, so shall we move on to dystopian future slash understanding human evil category of books? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Pick one that you, or two. Yeah, just go for it. We talked about The Ordinary Men and a little bit of Night kind of goes along with Ordinary Men because these two books actually coincide. Um, You know, we did talk about the Gulag Archipelago a little bit. Um, have you ever read the Unabomber's Manifesto? No, um, I read books by, I'm going to make an exception, like before I said I, I never got into serial killers and things like that, but there was a psychologist, or I think he was, he was the guy who claimed he invented FBI profiling. Mm-hmm. I think his name is John E. Douglas, and he wrote a series of books, and I thought the psychology aspect was fascinating, and he did a long profile of the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. And and I know that the Unabomber wrote something like a 30,000-word manifesto, which was published in the New York Times. Yeah. And so he was supposedly a big environmentalist. And so, He's a like... Futurist. Okay, a future... Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. Go ahead and tell oh, me. Because so. that's how I know, is that supposedly he killed 10, 12 people because he wanted to make political statements of some kind. It was... It, it's really weird. So... You know, I'm not afraid to admit, I, I bought and read the Unabomber's Manifesto okay. on Amazon, but there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the book where it's like, all the money goes towards the Red Cross and just to the publishing company just to publish the or to cover the shipping. Yeah, 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 no that's right, that's right. That Amazon actually also sells Mein Kampf by Hitler, and I think there's a similar thing going yeah. on. It's like, well, hey, listen, people probably... Uh, some people probably should read these books, not mm-hmm. as a how-to manual or for inspiration, but for the opposite of that, to, to understand yeah. the mind of these <clears throat> these killers. Yeah, if you don't learn history, you're doomed to repeat it. Yes, and yes. I, I feel like with this book, you know, he, out, I mean, my girlfriend is reading it right now. Okay. She is even telling me, like, this guy makes some good points. Uh-huh. And, and so he, he, you know, obviously, you know, not bombing people is a good point. Right, right, but, right. But if you read his book, he... Uh, he begins it's the main title was called like industrial society in its future and the first sentence is the most infamous sentence which is the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a downfall for humanity mm. and so he wrote it i believe in the 60s or the 70s and he wrote it because he uh, was walking out of a supermarket and okay. he heard a bird chirping yeah and he goes oh, i've heard that chirp before what is it and he realized the bird was imitating a car alarm it wasn't a normal oh my chirp. gosh no. okay and uh you know, it, it's really weird. And so he wrote this manifesto of uh, just ideas of, like, the future and how, okay. how humans have evolved past what we were meant to evolve to. So, for example, take, yeah, take like, I would say if you had to wake up uh-huh. every single day okay, and you had to get food and water and make shelter, would you still want to learn about American history? Would you still I'd probably be to... spending 18 hours a day getting food, water, and shelter. Exactly. You have no time. So his argument is 
we have done with the industrial revolution that's made everything easier like agriculture and cars and trains and everything's you know instead of having to take two weeks to go to the supermarket it's 10 minutes to and from okay and because we have cars and it's it's a really strange part because he he talks about how you know there's people in this parts again you agree with some things not all things uh-huh. he talks about how there's people with mental disabilities like okay. down syndrome and autism okay. who are being able to live longer and pass on their genes okay and are ruining future generations because we have now the technology to keep them alive okay so that's also kind of like the hitler point of view exactly like oh these people aren't effective let's kill them exactly so, so the unabomber was that way as well he yeah he was what you know he kind of was the pioneer for futurism which okay. is again like we have evolved past what we were meant okay so what does he want i i remember reading a few things <laughs> but that was 25 years ago or so he believed that the only way to fix the structure was total uh, destruction tear it tear the whole thing yeah. down and so his idea so is okay like, so get rid of like i don't know heating in the winter yep, it's exactly. negative 10 degrees outside well, stupid idiot, I shouldn't be living in Iowa in the first place. Exactly. Okay. And, and you can make the argument that he was like a Darwinist where he, you know, was survival of the fittest and okay. you know, whatever, but I digress. Um, he spoke about how when you, you know, you're going to have destruction regardless of when you tear it down. Okay. But you want to, you know, if you tear it down today, let's say, you know, for simplicity's sake, you know, 10,000 people will die. Okay. But if you tear it down in 20 years... 50,000 people. Okay. So even though there's going to be destruction either way, you want to do that destruction sooner than later so that there's less catastrophe happening. And when you tear it down, we need to get rid of things like the internet and modern medicine okay. and cars because those things are actually... Heating and cooling. Mm-hmm. Because there were people who, again, his argument, and this is a part that I don't agree with, <laughs> is, is that there are some people who shouldn't be alive today because they ah. are the weak species or the weak gene. And... Again, some of his ideas are very, very true because, you know, again, like birds, you know. Uh, birds probably should not sound like car alarms. Yeah, and, and so, you know, you, you his, the main thesis of the book, if I were to sum it up in a part that I do agree with, is yeah. that there is some, you know, idea and some, I, I mean, main thesis to the point of technology is limiting us as human beings. Right, like we right. Now have, I have my phone in my pocket. We have the whole internet and everything that's ever happened in human history in the palm of my hand. Right. That's strange because... It is strange. A hundred years ago, you had to go to a library that was bigger than this high school Mm -hmm. to even get a fraction of that information. Right. But now it's like, oh, I want to know who the 14th president was and when he died and his weird things about his life. Franklin Pierce. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. You just... You you know it. You know off the top of your head, but for someone like me who's a... You know, 21-year-old kid. You know, I know, that's, but that's why, yeah, I went to the library when I was a kid, yep. you and, know? Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and it's like, okay, well, you know, something like that, you know, you don't have to just know anymore. You right. Can just, you can just do it. It's so kind of like, I, I don't know if, if the Unabomber had been around during the internet. I think he was around during the beginning of the internet. He was around during the very, very like in the very beginning. late 90s, basically. Yeah. Like when computers were the size of buildings. Right. Kind of well, okay, no, that was more like in the 50s and 60s. Oh, they were smaller. You know, people got desktops basically roughly in about 1979 or so. And, <laughs> and those computer screens were green and black. And then pretty soon we had Macs, like these little Mac computers that were kind of teeny tiny. And 
uh, you put in hard disks into these things. And really, really, I seem to remember the internet starting to become a thing maybe like around 91, 92. Yeah. People said, oh, you should get email. And I was like, what's email? <laughs> yeah. And honestly, it might have been six, seven years before I actually bothered to get an email mm-hmm. account. Yeah. So that's strange. Yeah. 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 It's a little bit. Yeah. And yeah. so now you look at, you know, so again, like main thesis, like technology is becoming a problem. So, you know, people are, I think that's stupid. fair. That's yeah. fair to say because, yeah. okay. So technology is good because, Hey, we live longer, but technology is also bad because, well, it gave us the Twinkie, for example, it exactly. gave us high fructose corn syrup, uh, invented by Japanese food engineers with PhDs in roughly 1973. And so then it's in every food practically, you know, it's this artificial thing and it's kind of a sugar imitation thing. And so now we all have a lot of people who are, you know, eating too many Twinkies and then that causes all kinds of metabolic disorders, et cetera. So, I mean, you could say, hey, science is great because it can cure diseases. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. And then you could say, well, yeah, but science also can help us cause diseases because of the Twinkie. Yeah, exactly. You, like, know? you know, there's heart disease now and there's right. like diabetes type two. Right. Where it's... And none of this stuff, this stuff gets called diseases of civilization because a hundred years ago, this was not a problem. Mm-hmm. You didn't really have to worry about people getting diabetes or heart disease or cancer occurring in the rates that it's currently occurring. See, it's, it's funny you say that because my, my mom actually says that all the time. She's like, you know, we... Every time we heard of a kid getting cancer, it was literally once every 20 right. years. We never had that. Now, unfortunately, I, you know, again, I'm not perfect. I, you know, sometimes I'll drink soda, I'll eat junk food, uh-huh. but it's like, uh-huh. you know, I, I, you know, recently in the last few years tried to limit that because yeah. there are carcinogens in our food that we just don't know about. It's kind of like the cigarette, you know, yeah. we didn't know how bad it was until 50 years down right. the line, these 60 year olds were, you know, coughing up literally their lungs and then they, you know, get cut open when they're dead and they're just... Then people black see black, black lungs. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll just give you one more on this. Uh, and, you know, people make things illegal sometimes when they realize that they're bad. I think I read recently that Coca-Cola had cocaine in it up until 1904. Yep. I, I knew that it had cocaine at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that it was there until 1904. I think Coke comes out in, what, the 1870s, 1880s? Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that ballpark. I, so. think it, I think I heard a thing that was like Nintendo, Adolf Hitler, and Coca-Cola all began <laughs> in the same year, like 1878. I'm like, oh, it's kind of cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, since I teach a World War II class, I'm embarrassed that I know this, but 1889 was the year. That, that was the year? Okay. okay, that Hitler was born. Yeah, all those yeah. things, Nintendo, Coca-Cola, Hitler, all began in the same year. Oh, okay, Nintendo must have been something else though not a video game but something else it was i think it was like a like a physical game first okay okay it was a physical game then it turned kind of like a nickelodeon was like something you looked into to see cartoons and then it became a gotcha okay so so reading the unabomber's manifesto here's a big point that i'm drawing from this uh two big points one is even if you're a crazy mass murderer um he actually had a phd in mathematics he did Mm -hmm. so he's he's brilliant uh, he's evil, but even if you're a brilliant evil person, there's probably going to be one or two good things out of the 25 that you recommend. I mean, a broken clock is right twice. A day. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's that's the point. But then a second one is is that these people are, I guess, in their mind, maybe pursuing some kind of a good. Like he's thinking, hey, we're all going to be better off if we just go back to the Stone Age. Um, and I'm just trying to facilitate that by killing people in industry mm-hmm. or government. 
and see if I can get us to go back to the Stone Age. Yeah, and he he lived out what he preached. Like he lived on a farm by himself. Like he did. I think, with the exception of like shoes and some clothes, he made his own food and water and did everything. And then he was obviously caught for you know trying to yeah kill people, which is you know thank God. Yeah. Um, and, and you know just to finish on that point, yeah, like yeah. you know you even see this today with social media and YouTube. I think is the big one. Like I heard this story. You know, when, when YouTubers like, for example, uh, Logan Paul, okay. when they finish their videos, it's don't forget to like and subscribe, guys. Like, yeah, see you later. They, you know, that's always associated with like videos over, goodbye kind of thing. And there was a story um, of an article I read. Just, I'm going to start saying that week. in real life when I don't talk to, to people. Like and subscribe. Yeah, when people are like, bye, Tim. I'm going to be like, don't forget to like and subscribe. So, yeah. So, funny you say that. There was a story of a mom who was putting her two-year-old to bed. And she said, goodnight, honey. And he said, don't forget to like and subscribe, <laughs> mom. Because he was so used to YouTube. And he associated in his head... Don't forget to like and subscribe. Okay. As goodbye. I'll see you later, kind of thing. And this, it's it's very disturbing. Okay, that's hilarious, but disturbing. It's like the car alarm, you know. Yeah. The, the bird yeah. is imitating the car alarm is the you know the yeah. old version of a kid saying don't forget to like and subscribe. Yeah. Well, gosh, if that doesn't prove the point in ordinary men that people can get conditioned to do mm-hmm. the craziest, dumbest, most ridiculous, mm-hmm. or in the case of the other book, evil things, then mm-hmm. I don't know what's going to do it. Exactly. And he, it's, yeah, we're, we're going to adapt. Oh, for so, sure. Yeah. Um, whether it be good ad- adaptation or, or bad, bad adaptation. adaptation. Is there another book in that category that you would like to discuss? Uh, no, I think we kind of talked about all of them, honestly. Okay. Yeah. I, I love the novels that you listed there in that category. I just want to mention 1984. I think I've read that three times. I'm not sure. Animal Farm. I, I could reread that. That would stand me good. Um, mm-hmm. I actually met Ray Bradbury uh, when he was about 77 years old. He gave a talk, and oh, I wow. went to it. I was in my 20s. He was 77. He was in pretty rough shape, but when he got up to give a speech, he was a kid again. Mm-hmm. I mean, he That's was awesome. just filled with enthusiasm, and he, he's told a really funny joke at the beginning, and so I'm going to recommend people read that book. He is just wonderful. Gulag Archipelago is the true story of what happened in the Soviet Union, and it explains why a whole country just was beaten down into submission by Joseph Stalin, Mm -hmm. who is just bottomlessly evil. Mm -hmm. So that that is 100% worth reading, and and I've enjoyed what I've read so far. Okay, so we're going to get into fiction. Mm -hmm. So in for fiction, you listed, I think, 11, which is uh, Count of Monte Cristo, um, then also The Alchemist, um, The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, Crime and Punishment, The Odyssey by Homer, War and Peace by Tolstoy, a Lesson Before Dying by Ernest Gaines, Sherlock Holmes, Two Volumes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, Hard Times by Charles Dickens, and The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. So where do you want to go from here? Um, you know, I've always talked about The Count of Monte Cristo. My older okay. brother actually introduced that book to me when I was in seventh grade, and that was the first real, I, I would say, great fictitious work that I read. Okay. No, oh, excuse me. That's all right. <laughs> and uh, so The Count of Monte Cristo, it's, it's a book about, I would say, about redemption. Okay. And about revenge. Yeah. And about, you know, the, the main idea of the book is that, you know, it's not good to take revenge on people that have wronged you. Because 
I don't know if you've read the book. I actually know. This is a little embarrassing because oh. there's a bunch of people I know who say this is their favorite novel. I think I've read, I don't know how many on the list here, roughly seven or eight of these, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so it's... Uh, I'm sure I saw a movie version when I was a kid. That doesn't count. Yeah, so let's movie, tell, tell me about the book. Yeah, movie does not do the book justice for sure. It's a kind of a different okay. area that the movie goes into, but... Um, the book, for sure, is, you know, there's this guy, is, you know, um, Edmund Dantes. Okay. And he's got this wonderful life. He just became a captain of a ship, and he's got this wonderful, you know, woman. Her name's Mercedes, who he's going to marry. And, um, you know, he's, he's getting ready for everything, and he has these people who, one of them wants the woman he has, one of them wants the job that oh. he has, one of them wants his fortune. And they all conspire against him, because it's in the post-Napoleonic era of the Napoleonic okay. Wars. Um and uh, they essentially get him in prison. And, you know, he doesn't know why he's in prison. He just is he's like, okay, I'm... Okay. Down. So the book is about... I think the, I think like a third of the book is him in prison. And in prison, he's in there for like 30 years. Oh, my god! he meets a priest who teaches him like how to be, you know, multilingual and like basic arithmetic and like teaches him to be, you know... Uh, a man of the world. Yeah, exactly. Wise. Like a, a count. Yeah, like okay. a very wise man. And he tells him, you know, the whole time they're learning, he's learning arithmetic and all these things, and they're trying to escape the whole time. And, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but he eventually becomes, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo instead of Edmund Dantes. Let's let's just say spoiler alert, alert and then you can spoil away. Okay, spoiler alert to anybody listening. Yeah. Um, he eventually gets out of the prison. And uh, I think the main quote from the book is that, like, in a rose from the water was the Count of Monte Cristo. Because, again, he, he dies in prison as Edmund Dantes and, and rises. It's kind of like a, a, what's the word, a phoenix? Okay, phoenix ashes. rises from the ashes. Exactly, that's the analogy that I've heard from the book. And he, you know, the priest is like, you know, I have this treasure. And that's why he was thrown into prison because they thought he was crazy. Um, Edmund actually finds the treasure and becomes what's equivalent to like a hundred billion dollars mm. in today's money. Okay, that's the kind of money he had at that time. And again, this was like eighteen forty. Okay, so equivalent. Equivalent, yeah. So he's he's just rich up, but he's able okay. to do whatever he wants. And the book goes into him essentially physically, not like you know beating them or torturing them, but like psychologically torturing the people who um, who wronged him because they don't recognize him. Because there's a scene where he. Um, looks at his reflection for the first time in 30 years. Okay. After finding out what year it is, and he realized he's been in there for like 27 years. Oh, my gosh. And he's got a beard. His his skin is all faded. He's pale. He's, like, you know, wrinkly. He realizes, I'm a different man. Mm -hmm. He was 17 when he went in, and he was in his 30s when he came out. Okay. Nobody recognizes him. Mercedes remarries the man who wanted her. Um, uh, The man who wanted his job has his job. He became a millionaire. And, um, takes the steps necessary to like ruin these people's lives and it gets to the point where the first man he like you know again i don't want to ruin the yeah yeah but but we said spoiler alert so so if you don't want to get spoiled then just fast forward about maybe a minute or two all these people end up either killing themselves or changing their name and moving to other places of the world and this is in france and it's very disturbing not disturbing like the other books we talked about. Right, right, right. crazy because it's like, you know, the, he reveals himself, you know, I'm the man who you wronged. And they end up becoming so guilt-ridden that they either, like I said, run away or kill themselves. Oh. And it's, in the end of the book, um, he's talking with uh, the girl that he ends up 
you know, he was going to marry. And she's like, what did you gain from this? He said, nothing. I, if anything, I lost. Oh my God. So the main point of the book is that like, you know, while revenge may be on your mind, it's better for you to push that idea away. Okay. So that you don't fall prey to becoming bitter. Okay. And it's bitter and resentful. Bitter and resentful. Yes. Um, it's again, that's probably like, you know, there's more to it, obviously like very right. small details. And there's like psychological ways that he messes with these people and they start freaking out. Um, See, this is what's great about novels, mm-hmm. but, but keep going. That, that's pretty much it. Yeah. He just, it's, it's a very good book. And I, I think that at the very end, um, he leaves a note, excuse me, to, uh, one of the people who he is friends with throughout the book. And, uh, he's like, if I could summarize all human wisdom in one sentence, it would be to wait and to hope. And I really like okay. that because I think that, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if he were to just, you know, he waited in prison and he had hope that he was going to get out. Yeah. And, you know, you can apply that to anything, you know, yeah. like myself, you know, kind of wrap it up. You know, I'm, I'm striving to be an attorney. I'm going to be in law school in less than a year now. And it's, it's very exciting, but it's also very nerve wracking. Right. I just have to continue to do what I'm doing and get better every day, only by 1%. I don't have right. to make giant leaps. And, you know, I can have that hope and I can wait, but it's ultimately going to be up to me to fulfill my dream. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, you, uh, hope and, and work. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Um, here's what I really love about novels oftentimes is that, okay, I know the unabridged version of this book is well over a thousand pages oh, long. Oh, it's about 1,400. 1,400, okay. I've, never so, read, I've read the abridged version. I have not read the unabridged version. So, I mean, it's Lord of the Rings or it's um, War and Peace length. It's mm-hmm. ridiculously long and then people have an abridged version which is four or 500 pages long, something like Roughly. that. Well, the thing is, I have a very good friend who reads all the time. His name is Matt Darrow, and it's one of his favorite books. And he loves the whole revenge component of the whole thing. And mm-hmm. Matt is such a good guy, and he's a straight arrow, and he's got good ethics and morals and things like that. Um, but he just really enjoys the revenge thing. So, yeah. so I guess to each his own. <laughs> yeah, to each his own. And this is what I like about fiction is, is that, okay, well, if revenge is bad... Why did we need 1,400 pages of exquisite detail? Oh, yeah. You know, at, at a certain point, you kind of wonder, maybe the author really enjoyed writing, you know, 300 pages of how the main character did in the first guy. Mm-hmm. And then 250 pages of how he did in the second guy. Mm-hmm. Maybe the author really, really kind of enjoyed that because he knew readers would also enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yes, revenge is bad, but... This is what's so complex about fiction is stories are complex because we think that we're going to be able to sum things up neatly mm-hmm. in a theme, but there could be a counter theme. I guess going you can on. also put yourself mentally in the place of that character, which yes. is what I tend to do. Yes. I prefer nonfiction over fiction books, but okay. of those fiction books, I think The Alchemist is one as well. Oh yeah. Um, that we can just briefly yeah. talk about. Yeah, let's about. talk about The Alchemist. Failure after failure and just like setback after setback. I, I get I'm only 21 years old, but like that message in that book is that, you know, I don't know if you've read The Alchemist. I, I've read it. You, you know, when he gets over to like, uh, like, you know, Africa for the first time and he gets his bag stolen in Morocco and it's like, you know, that sucks. That's a setback. But he, you know, comes back from the setback and then he gets there and gets beaten up by the people at the pyramids and then, they, you know, he gets set back again. Yes. And it's just, the, you know, the idea that I got from that book is that like, if you really want something in your life, you're going to have to really persevere through it. Yes. And, you know, that is one of those books where I place myself in the position of yeah. the character and I was, yeah. you know, just thinking about, I read that book in February 
Okay. And I was just thinking about it um, at the time, and I was like, you know, I, you know, I've, I've, I get what this character is thinking. I've been through it, and it sucks. But like, I also get his feeling of like, oh, look at this great redemption arc that I just yeah. went through. Like, I, again, I'm only 21 years old, and yeah. there's going to be more setbacks. But right. now I can apply what I've learned from setbacks in the past to the future. So, you know, even though there will be setbacks, there won't be as many and they won't be as deep as the ones before. Yeah. And I think that's why The Alchemist kind of connects with Monte Cristo as well. Yeah, that book, both these books sold just a colossal amount of copies. And The Alchemist, last time I heard, had sold at least 20 million copies, which is oh ridiculously phenomenal. That's crazy. For I a book. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. Are there others here that you'd really like to touch on? Not really. Others are just like the Odyssey, War and Peace, A Lesson Before Dying, um, all of these, To Kill a Mockingbird, Crime and Punishment. Um, definitely recommend to anyone listening. They're great books. Um, kind of hard to understand, especially ones like War and Peace and Crime and Punishment and The Odyssey, but if you just slow down, that's what I've learned with myself is that I wanted to read more, and I didn't want to just go through a book. I wanted to really understand what I was reading, so to anyone who is discouraged about reading or thinks that reading is stupid, like just try it, go slow. It may be really embarrassing at first, but once you really understand, you're gonna, you know, the concepts that you're reading, not only will you be able to like articulate what you're thinking better to other people around you, but you're also gonna be able to read faster, do better in school. I mean, that's that's what it was for me at least, because I've been doing great in school. Wow. And and you attribute most of that to the reading, which to me as a former English teacher, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that seems obvious to me that if people read more and if they discuss more and if they write, it's just simply going to make you into a sharper, more articulate thinker. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I think maybe not necessarily smarter in my own case, because I think Sometimes, hey, if I'm super articulate, people might think I'm smarter than what I actually am. But nonetheless, I just think, hey, you know, if I read things, well, then some of that's going to stick. Especially, yeah, especially with like my law school admissions test, there's a section called a reading comprehension. Okay. And it's a lot like the, I mean, not a lot, like it's very different, but the format, I would say, is exactly like the ACT format where you read a passage and then you answer questions about the passage. But instead of the ACT where it's like, you know, uh, what, what is something the author said attributes to the Monte Cristo book? And then you just look in the passage and, like, the answer's in there. Okay. With this, it's like, what is the main point of the passage? What is the, mm. the structure? What is the main argument of the passage? And so reading books, especially hard books like Jordan B. Peterson and then yeah. Aurelius and Aristotle and, you know, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and, you know, you start to not just read for pleasure or read for speed or anything but you're starting to say okay well like you know the may it's easier for you to pick up messages in the lsat because you're reading these hard messages in these books that's right and you have a lot of practice yeah you become emotionally resilient to a lot of things like that and yeah. i think that it's definitely a skill that i think everybody should adapt in their lives well let, let me ask uh one last question on reading just in general and it's this i for me it would be awesome if people started to read and took pleasure in reading. How do you think we can persuade people that reading is pleasurable? People, people will do pleasurable activities. If I say this is good for you, well, okay, people are not necessarily going to do that. Mm-hmm. I could say, well, it's good for you to eat nothing but healthy food, mm-hmm. but people like Twinkies. Mm-hmm. So how do I convince people that reading is pleasurable? I would say, 
read if what you want to learn about. Because for me, it began as I just want to get better at reading dense material. And then it got to the point where like I started reading specific types of books. I started okay. reading about philosophy and it interested me. Or you know, I am stuttering right now, I apologize. Um, but you know, it's kind of like I we were talking about before the podcast was that you know I hated reading yeah. in high school and in grade school because you know it was you know withering heights and uh-huh. I was like that is does not look good it's a thick book you know Macbeth it's terrible I don't like it because people were telling me to read it but when you start reading for your own pleasure into you know you have to tell yourself that you're bettering yourself and, and when you treat yourself as if you're someone that you need to take care of yes and you start to realize that this can only make you a better person, not only with like your you know, intellectual skills, but also with like how you approach life in general. I think more people would appreciate that and say, okay, well, these are the answers to the questions that I've had my whole life. Okay, Reed, I, I think that's an excellent note for us to end on and I'm deeply grateful. And I hope we can do this again sometime very soon. Of course, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you again for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor that you could possibly do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. 